Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them. Isn't that helpful? <laughs> Genesis, you can open them to the book of Genesis. Well, I think it's safe to say, and I'm pretty confident we all would agree, that the last several years have been really hard years. We've been living through challenging days. Is that not true? You're just, just thinking, it's just the last three years. I mean, it starts with the pandemic, and then it quickly shifted, as you probably remember, to the fires, the open chain and the Alameda fires. Many of those folks are still trying to put their homes and their lives back together. And then we had this incredibly hardline partisan politics, ugly, ugly presidential elections. Uh, we've had all sorts of things. We've had soaring inflation, the highest inflation in 40 years. And now, 2023, it starts off with the great egg crisis <laughs> that everybody's facing, the great egg crisis of 2023. And I know, we're, you know, I say all of that, and plenty of us, many of us are tired. We're tired of hardship. We're tired of just more and more the constant barrage of bad news. It may surprise you to know, especially if you've been raised in the West, that life has always been hard. That's true for people in the West to actually believe. We'll talk about why at the closing end. But life has always been hard. Ever since, well, let me rephrase that. Ever since the fall, life has been hard. Life has been filled with challenges and trials. And the scriptures, of course, are chock full of, of uh, accounts of this, where the people of God have had to learn, and it is, a learn, it is a learned skill, have learned how to navigate walking with God through trials and challenges and tragedies. And in Genesis chapter 26, you can go ahead and turn there, we'll see another example of this. As Isaac, Abraham's son, is faced with a huge crisis and a whole lot of hostility. So Genesis chapter 26 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you've been with us over these last many weeks, you know that we've been tracing, we've been tracking and tracing the life and the faith of Abraham, uh, the father of the faith. We've been tracking his story for many, many weeks now. And then you come to the second half of Genesis chapter 25, and a whole new section begins, a whole new in, in the Hebrew Bible, it's called the Toldot. It's a whole new section. It starts with, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, you read these words. These are the generations of Isaac. And again, that, that's a whole new section right there. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And so as a reader, you fully expect that the next story is going to be about Isaac. And it comes as a little bit of a surprise that it's not. It starts by talking about Jacob and Esau. And we saw last week the story of, of Jacob and Esau and the selling of the birthright. And this was a huge, and this is a huge story that continues in chapter 20, uh, chapter 25 and then all the way into chapter 27. We saw how Esau, even though he was a really skilled hunter, he gets trapped by his younger brother, Jacob. 
And he sells his birthright to Jacob. And a birthright, remember, that's an incredibly consequential deal because a birthright was a, was a privileged status in the family. You're the older brother. You get, you're, it's a privileged status. It's a double portion of the property. And for Abraham's family, it's the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant. So it's hugely important. And Esau, he relinquishes his spiritual inheritance for, to satisfy his physical appetites. And humans have been doing the same ever since. So he sells his birthright to Jacob. That's in chapter the second half of chapter 25. But then when you get into chapter 27, what you see is Jacob steals the blessing. With the help of his mother, we'll talk about that, dysfunction in the home later, next week. With the help of his mother, Jacob steals the blessing from Esau. And, and then from chapter 27 forward, the whole story all the way until chapter 37, is about Jacob. Everything is focused on Jacob. But in chapter 26, which is where we're, where we're going to be, after the selling of the birthright and before the stealing of the blessing, we have this one chapter that focuses on Isaac, the promised son. Well, what is that about? Here's what it's about, and here's why Moses includes it. It's to show... It shows us that, that Isaac, the promised son, really is the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant. He really is the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant. So what Esau sells and what Jacob steals really is the covenant blessing of God. And therefore Israel, who remember descends from Jacob, really is the covenant people of God. Does that make sense? You gotta remember, I know this isn't all that exciting right off the get-go, but you gotta remember, the Bible is, by nature, the scriptures are a theological book. It's telling us the story of God. We wanna, we want the Bible to be about us. We wanna be the stars of the Bible. But we're not. God is. And so it's tracing the story of how Israel comes to be the covenant people of God. And so it's showing that, that Isaac really is the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant and what Esau sells and what Jacob steals really becomes the covenant blessing to the people of Israel. And the text will show us this by comparing Isaac's life with Abraham's life. And we'll see how the Lord provided the same promises, the same protection, and the same blessings. Uh, what you'll see in chapter 26 is Isaac's life parallels so much of Abraham's life. Isaac's life looks and feels so similar to Abraham's life. You guys remember um, Neil Young, his classic song, Old Man? Old man, take a look at my life. I'm a lot like you. Remember that song? Some of you hippies are like, yes. I remember you're having flashbacks right now. I remember the glory days well, that, no, that, that song, Old Man Take a Look at My Life, I'm a Lot Like You, that's the feeling, it's a great song, it's been playing in my office nonstop all week as I've been thinking about it, um, that's the feeling of chapter 26, because you're gonna look at, you're gonna look at Isaac's life, and it's like a spitting image, it, it parallels at every stop, Abraham's life. And what it will show is that God is completely faithful, and he's carrying on the covenant through Isaac. It's showing, again, Isaac's life parallels Abraham's life. He's the inheritor of the covenant promises. He's the inheritor of the covenant protection. And that the covenant comes to and then it goes through Isaac. 
He's the legitimate heir of the Abrahamic covenant. The one that Esau sells and the one that Jacob steals. Uh, He is the inheritor of that. And therefore, the promises and the protection and the blessing of God will rest with Israel. Okay, with that, let's get into the text. If you're a note taker, you'll want to take note of the outline. I'll give it to you right now. It breaks down nicely, real real nicely into two sections. In verses 1 through 11, what you'll see is the Lord reaffirms the promise to Isaac. He reaffirms the promise to Isaac. The Lord tells Isaac, as he told Abraham, I will give you progeny, property, and my presence will go with you. Progeny, property, and my presence will go with you. And then in verses 12 through 33, what we'll see is the Lord confirms the, pro- the promise to Isaac. The Lord confirms his, his presence and his blessings to Isaac in ways that are very similar to how he did it with Abraham. He'll bless him in four ways, just like he did with Abraham. Crops and herds, water in the middle of the desert, the Lord's presence, and a pact of peace. Very much similar to what he did with Abraham. Again, um, what the author is showing us is that Isaac is the rightful heir to the, to the covenant promises. Okay, so let's begin. Verse 1, chapter 26. The Lord reaffirms the promise to Isaac. Now, we're told, verse 1, Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Now, let me just ask you, does that sound familiar at all? That there was a famine in the land? Um, It should sound familiar because this is exactly the case. In Genesis chapter 12, right after the Lord calls to and covenants with Abraham, in chapter 12 we read, now there was a famine in the land. And so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. The exact exact same words. And I mentioned this last week when, um, when we were talking about how uh, Isaac and Rebekah and how she was barren. And I said many of the same stresses and strains of the previous generation will have to be experienced by Isaac. And that's exactly, that's exactly the case. And here's another one here. And just as Abraham had to deal with a severe famine that put his life and his family in jeopardy, so too does Isaac. And this is a huge crisis. A famine in that day, well, that's a huge crisis. This is a much bigger crisis than the toilet paper crisis of 2020. This was a, this is a massive, and by the way, that was a pretty big crisis too. But this is a massive, massive crisis. A, a severe famine in that day, that's a major threat to his existence as a shepherd. Remember, he's a shepherd. A famine, no crops, no nothing, dust bowl. It's a terrible thing. It's a major trial that he has to learn to navigate. And so he travels to Gerar, still in the promised land, to Abimelech, the king. And if you've been with us in Genesis, that name Abimelech should sound familiar. Because this is now the second time that the name Abimelech comes up, because he came up in Genesis chapter 20. Um, when Abraham had dealings with Abimelech. Now, the name Abimelech, it means my father is king. So this is probably a dynastic title, um, kind of like Pharaoh. Um, and so probably Abraham dealt with this Abimelech's dad. And so now you have Isaac dealing with that Abimelech's son. 
Just as Abraham deceived the father, now Isaac is going to deceive, we'll see in a second, he's going to deceive the son. So this famine hits, and Isaac's thinking he's got to go to Egypt because of how well-watered everything is from the Nile. He's going to go down there, and there will be crops for whatever livestock he has at this point. And as he's making his plans, the Lord interrupts his thoughts and changes his plans. By the way, do you allow that? When you're making your plans, do you allow the Lord to interrupt the making of your plans? That's a skill. But you kind of have to, you hold your plans real loose and you say, Lord, if these plans aren't of you, I want you to speak into them. I want you to change them. And that's exactly what's taking place here because he's making his plans. He's thinking, I got to get to Egypt. There's all sorts of, of, um, of water there through the Niles, all, all the irrigation system is set up. i got to get my animals down there. And the Lord speaks to him. Look at verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. That's what your father did. You're, gonna, you're not going to do that. Don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. And to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now notice what he promises to him. These are the same covenant promises. Did you pick up on that? Same covenant promises that were made to Abraham. Isaac is inheriting the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord promises to him progeny, property, that's the promised land, and his presence. You see in verse 2 the phrase, I will be with you. That's a great promise. And I will bless you. So the Abrahamic covenant is now passed on to Isaac, where progeny, property, and the Lord's presence is promised to him. Now, also note in verse 5, notice what it says. Why? Well, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge. Um, probably specifically thinking of the great test to sacrifice Isaac, but, but generally speaking, on a general direction, Abraham lived faithfully. Now, that doesn't mean he lived perfectly, but generally speaking, Abraham's faith led to obedience to the Lord in his ways. And because of that, and because of the Lord's blessing, Isaac inherited animals and servants, a great name and a great promise. He enjoyed all of God's blessings because of the faithfulness to the Father. Because of the faithfulness of his father. Now wait a second. Do you mean to tell me that, that our obedience in the present, our obedience in the present moment can have a positive effect on the lives of our kids? You better believe it. Our obedience in the present moment can have a long lasting positive effect on the lives of our kids. Because one of the great, one of the great privileges of being raised in a Christian home where the Lord is following the Lord is prioritized, is you inherit by osmosis. You just inherit it by osmosis. You inherit a way of thinking, 
and a way of living that's contrary to the culture, but is in step with the ways of the Lord. And you, and you, you just absorb it. Because if your parents are living this way, if they prioritize following the Lord, if they prioritize when hard things happen, you don't sit there and just complain about it nonstop. You go to the Lord in prayer about it. They, you inherit that by osmosis. You inherit a way of thinking and a way of living that brings honor to the Lord. And you may be thinking, okay, well, I wasn't raised in that type of home. Okay. Well, just because you weren't raised in that type of home doesn't mean you can't start today. Yes, your parents were influential, but they're not determinative. You make decisions for yourself. You can say, you know what? I'm the grown-up in the room now. And just because I wasn't raised in that type of home doesn't mean my kids don't have to be raised in that type of home. As for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. You see, you can make a decision as a parent and say, my obedience to the Lord in this present moment can have a long, it will shape my children's horizons. They will absorb by osmosis a way of thinking and a way of living that doesn't start with me, which is what everything the culture says. Thinking begins in enlightenment culture. Thinking begins with me. A Christian says, no, thinking actually doesn't begin with me. It begins with the Lord. And that way of thinking gets passed on to your children. That You can make that decision for your family today. Your, your obedience to the Lord, it makes an indelible mark upon your kids now. And it will shape them going forward. Now, as I say that, let me also say this. While your obedience to the Lord now makes an indelible mark upon your kids, that will shape them. So will your disobedience. By the way, <laughs> so will your disobedience. Now, why do I say that? Because of what happens next. Because Isaac, instead of moving forward in faith... He moves forward in fear. And he makes many of the same mistakes that his father does. Look at verse 6. So Isaac settled in uh, Gerer. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Where have we seen this before? She is my sister. Now, why does he say that? Look at the next line. For he feared. For he feared to say, for he feared to say, um, to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. I tell you what, this is deja vu all over again. It's exactly what Abraham did. Here's Isaac, and instead of following in the footsteps of Abraham, as the faithful one who grew in, in obedience and trust in the Lord over the course of his life, he's actually repeating many of the same mistakes of, the, of his father from earlier in his life. And just as our obedience shapes our kids' horizons, so too does our disobedience. Why? Well, because our kids are always watching us. They're always analyzing us to see if the faith that we profess is really real. Our children will learn our sins. They will learn our failures. They'll repeat our mistakes. The old saying is true. What we indulge or what we excuse in moderation, they will indulge in excess. That saying is true. And it's only, it, it's only when God's grace intervenes that our children will really begin walking with the Lord. And we'd like to think that they wouldn't make the same mistakes as us. And when they're born, I mean, poor Rush, I mean, he's hearing this today. <sighs> 
we, we think when our kids are born that they won't make the same mistakes as we will make until you see the first temper tantrum. And then you realize, oh, no, they're just like me. They, they have inherited my sin nature. And again, it's not until God's grace intervenes that they really have grown up faith all their own. And so Isaac, just like his dad, he doesn't move forward in covenant faith. Now think about that because the covenant had just been reaffirmed to him. Saying all of these things are going to be, I'm going to be with you. My presence and my protection, all of these things will be with you. And he hears it and he moves out, not with that. He doesn't live out of that covenant reality. He moves forward in faith or it moves forward in fear. How much of our life is controlled by fear? How many of our decisions we make are based on fear rather than living in covenant faith? A good portion of them. I would imagine a good portion of them. And so he, mo- he makes the same mistakes as his father. And then, verse 8, when he had been there a long time, he passes off his, his wife as a sister, and then when he, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with his wife, Rebekah. You see where it says he was laughing with Rebekah? In the NIV... And in the New American Standard, it says he was caressing Rebecca. In the King James Version, it says he was sporting with his wife, Rebecca. And every man in the room is like, that's the type of sport I want to play. Um, in one of the Jewish translations, it says he was playing with his wife, Rebecca. And so what's happening here? is they're engaged in foreplay. A little hanky-panky is going on here. And Abimelech, he, you know, he's doing his thing. He looks out the window real quickly, and then he's like, whoa, what is happening over here? And he's got to be thinking, unless these people are from South Mississippi, this is not brother and sister activity. What is going on here? I'm in shock of all shocks. He looks out there, and he's like, you've got to be kidding me. This guy deceived me. He lied straight to his face. That better not be his sister. And so then verse 9, so Abimelech called Isaac. <laughs> I wonder how quickly this happened. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said, hmm. and Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of, the, one of the people might have easily lain with your wife. We don't find out how Rebecca feels about Abimelech's comment, by the way. Um, but he says, one of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you, you would have brought guilt upon us. And so Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So just like Abraham before him, Isaac put the promise of God in jeopardy by lying about his wife. Um, but this time through normal means. I mean, the previous two times that Abraham did this, first there were plagues that came upon uh, Egypt, and then the second time the Lord appeared in a dream to Abimelech. This time, through normal means, the Lord um, preserves the promise by allowing him to see what he saw. And he protects Rebecca and Isaac, and ultimately, he's protecting the covenant, the covenant family. 
He's protecting all of these things. And I love it because it shows us that God's faithful to his children despite their mistakes. In spite of our frequent fears, in, in, in spite of our frequent unbelief, he's faithful to us. God appears to Isaac. Or God appears, he, he reaffirms the covenant, and then Isaac goes out and he fails. And so you would think, well, God's got to be done with him at that point. Nope, nope. What he does is the Lord draws him back. And he strengthens them. Just as he does with us when we fail. And when we disobey, he, he calls us back, he dusts us off, he forgives us, and he sends us out back again. He doesn't cast them off. He doesn't cast us off. He renews them. He draws them back to himself. By the way, note that Abimelech has higher, a higher level of morality than Isaac does, than the promised son. He has a higher level of morality. He has a higher view of right and wrong than uh, Isaac does. And that's, that's kind of a warning to us, that when the surrounding culture has higher standards of right and wrong than we do, than the people of God, we might need to reconsider some of our positions. And that's certainly the case here. He says, no, she's my sister. He lies, lies straight to him. Now, so verses 1 through 11, what you got is the Lord reaffirming the promise to Isaac. Now, verses 12 through 33, what you'll see is the Lord confirming the promise to Isaac. And he'll, he'll do it in four ways, just as I said in the opening. He'll do it through crops and herds. He'll do it through water in the desert. He'll do it through the Lord's presence, and he'll do it through a pact of peace. He'll show over, just as he did with Abraham, he'll show him every step of the way, my presence and my provision and my peace goes before you, Isaac. And so first we'll see the provision of crops and herds. Look at verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land, and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed Am I back on? Still there? Okay. He, he reaped a hundredfold. Now think about this. Think about his life because he's went from famine to reaping a crop a hundredfold. God's good hand is evident upon Isaac. And it was a witness. Now think about everybody around that. Everybody in that little valley. Uh, everybody who's witnessing this is thinking to themselves, God is faithful to keep his covenant and it has been passed on to Isaac. And then verse 13 and the man became rich, and he gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. Um, so he became, Isaac became wealthier and more powerful all the time. This whole time, because God, God was blessing him. And this created jealousy and strife, much like it does today. Anytime somebody becomes wealthy and powerful, it also creates on the back end of it all sorts of strife and all sorts of problems, just as it did for Abraham. And so the Philistines, in an, in an attempt to hinder Isaac's prosperity, they caved in his wells. Ruin his access to water. And water in an arid environment with huge flocks, water's the difference between life and death. It's the, biz- it's the difference between a successful business and a, a, a business that goes out of business. 
Water is everything in that culture. We take water for granted in our culture. Most of us don't even think about it when we flip on our taps where the water comes from. We just take it for granted. It comes from the great town of Butte Falls, the land of pure air, sunshine, and, and, and uh, health. Butte Falls, gorgeous. You guys should visit sometime. Um, we just take it for granted. But in that culture, water was everything. Water was, again, the difference between life and wealth. And, and the Philistines caving in his water, that was a major disruption to the, his business. It'd be like a hacker taking over Amazon.com, the source of their business. That would be seen as a, a very major uh, act of hostility. This is not a minor irritation. This is an act of hostility. This is what the caving, caving in of, of the wells would do. It would cripple his business for someone with flocks. And so the, in verse 16... Abimelech said to, said to Isaac, go away from us. He, he recognizes how much God's blessing has been upon him. And so he says, go, up, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. And so Isaac does. Rather than live in friction, he goes away. And so Isaac departed, and this is where we see the provision of water in the desert. Everywhere Isaac's going to go, there's going to be more water. So Isaac departed from there, and encamped in the valley of Gerar, and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. So he's reasserting his rights as the owner of these wells. Everyone he, he comes upon, he sees it, knows what it is, opens the well back up, Gives it the name that his father had given him, saying, I'm the heir of Abraham. He's making this very, very clear. Verse 19. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, meaning living water, they found a spring. The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the, of the well Esek, because, uh, because they contended with him. So his herdsmen quarrel with these other herdsmen. Does that remind you of anything in Abraham's life? It should in Genesis chapter 13. There was this quarreling between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. And they were quarreling about who would have the best land, who would have the most well-watered land. And here they are, they're fighting over the spring. And so Abraham names it a seek, which means contention. So they're fighting over this, just like, just like what uh, Abraham had to deal with. In verse 21, then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. And so he called its name Sitna. Uh, Sitma, Sitna means en enmity. So again, more fighting, more threats to the business, more hardship, more trials, more irritations, things that you, you don't want to deal with. Every day he wakes up and there's more things that he doesn't want to deal with. Another fight, another fraction, more hostility. And so he continues to move forward. Look at verse um, 22. And he moved from there and he dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. Hallelujah, he's thinking. So they called his name Rehoboth for saying, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth means uh, open places, wide open places, broad place, something along those lines. 
And so he finally, uh, it was part of the blessing on Isaac's life to have a little bit of room to have a well that, there that's producing. So now look, look at how the Lord has blessed Isaac so far. Provision of the crops and the herds, the provision of water in the desert. Now in verses 23 through 25, we're going to see the Lord blesses Isaac with his presence. Look at verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. He has this theophany. The Lord appears right there to him. He says, I am the God of your Abraham father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So the Lord appears to him and reaffirms his promise and his provision, his presence. And Isaac builds an altar and he worships the Lord right there. And again, this is exactly what happened in Abraham's life. When the Lord appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord appeared, he reaffirms the promise to him, and the next thing we see is is Abraham building an altar to the Lord and worshiping him. He's paralleling. Moses is showing us all the way through. This is the rightful inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant. And now, verses 26 through 33, we're going to see this pact of peace. And it's the last of the blessings. When Abimelech went to him, from Gerar with Ahuza, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and you've sent me away from you? And they said, We see, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Now notice this. These who were once his enemies are saying, We see through your life the Lord's faithfulness to you. We see that he has blessed you again and again and again. We've witnessed it. We may not have liked it, (laughs) but we've seen it. We've witnessed it. And so we said, the three of us got together, Azusa, Abimelech, and Phicol. We said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do no harm, do us no harm, just as we have not touched you (laughs) and have not done nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Wink, wink, nod, nod. We've done nothing but good for you. You are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast. And they ate. And they drank. So they have this, this whole little feast. They sign this oath. They have a drink. They have this nice large feast. This is, this is a living example of Proverbs chapter 16 verse 7. When a, when a man's ways please the Lord. He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's exactly what's happening here. They sign this covenant. They, they have a feast. It's kind of like a marriage deal. You have a covenant. You, you, you have a large feast. He makes this pact with, with Isaac because he knows. He's witnessed. And he knows that Isaac is blessed by the Lord. Meaning even his enemies know that the Abrahamic covenant really has been inherited by Isaac. And so they make this pact with one, one another. Then they celebrate a feast. And then things get better. For Isaac. Look at verse 32. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beer Sheba to this day. Amazing. And we'll stop right there. We'll pick up the next two verses next week because it ties in better with the following chapter. It's an amazing scene. You know, you think about this. He goes from precarious existence to abundant provision. He goes from famine to fortune. 
He goes from conflict and hostility to a pact of peace. All of it, all of it signifying to those who are watching that the Lord is faithful and that the Abrahamic covenant really has been inherited by Isaac. Okay, I want to stop there. Here's what I want to do. I want to go back and I want to close by offering some advice uh, by way of application on how to live in a world that is marked by trials. How do we live in a world as a Christian, as a faithful person, how do you live in a world that's marked by trials? Because if Isaac's life, because Isaac had to learn to navigate him, which means we must learn to, to navigate trials that, are, that fill our life. So let me offer four pieces of pastoral advice. How do you live in a world that's marked by trials? Here's the first one. You should expect challenges rather than be caught off guard by them. You should expect challenges rather than being caught off guard by them. If, now think about it, because if the son of promise in the promised land is going to experience trials, famines, severe famines and hostility, then what you should expect is that you're gonna, you should expect to experience trials. You should expect that trials will come your way. You should not be surprised when trials do come your way. Even, even Shakespeare understood this point well. He wrote in Macbeth, each new morn, new widows howl. Each new morn, new orphans cry. Each new morn, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. You see, we will all experience, all of us will, our own set of challenges and tragedies. The loss of loved ones. Uh, debilitating and fatal illnesses. Betrayals. Financial reversals, moral failures. If we all live, all of us will, eventually, will come upon you if you live to a normal age of life. If you live out the normal lifespan, all of these things will come upon you, either personally or to those you're related to. No one is immune from it. We should all expect it. We should expect challenges rather than being caught off guard by them. And yet what's surprising in America, in the United States particularly, we are caught off guard by them. We're completely caught off guard by them. We do not expect challenges. We do not expect trials. We do not expect suffering. Listen to this quote by Paul Brand. Paul Brand was um, a pioneering orthopedic surgeon in the treatment of leprosy patients. In the first part of his career, he, he worked exclusively in India. And then in the later half of his career, he came back to America and he worked in America. And he said these words. He says, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Raise your hand if you seek to avoid pain at all costs. <laughs> okay, good. I'm not alone. But he goes on. He says, patience... He said, patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and to be far more traumatized by it. Huh. Well, why would that be the case? Well, if your underlying worldview says the material world is all there is, if you're a philosophical naturalist, if you're a naturalist, a naturalist, the easiest way to think about being a naturalist is when you think about the world, you think there's nothing before, there's nothing behind, there's nothing beyond the material world. The material world is all there is. 
So if your underlying worldview says that this is all there is, that the material world is all there is, then there can't be, there simply cannot be any meaning or purpose to the challenges and the difficulties that we face. Therefore, all that's left is to be traumatized by it. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah? But if your worldview says the Lord can actually use the challenges and the trials to shape me and my life, he can actually use the trials and the challenges, the severe famines in my life, to move me, to shape me, to form me, to reveal to a new group of people his faithfulness. If, you're, if, your, world, if your underlying worldview actually has that in it, then you're better able to bear up under the challenges and the trials and not be so traumatized by it. Does that make sense? So how do you live in a world that's first, that's, that's marked by uh, trials and calamity? First, expect challenges rather than being surprised by them. Nobody gets through life unscathed. And adopt a worldview that says, well, come to Christ. Let's start there. Come to Christ and adopt a worldview that says God can actually use sufferings. And the clearest example of this is the cross of Christ himself. He can use the most horrific tragedy to bring about something purposeful and beautiful. And if that's the case, then the underlying assumption of my life then is that he can use the sufferings in my life for his good redemptive purposes. So you've got to expect challenges and not be so caught off guard by them. Here's the second way. You live out covenant faith rather than being driven along by fear. How do you live in a world that's marked by trials? You live out covenant faith rather than being driven along by fear. What, is, what does the Lord tell Isaac in the beginning? Well, he reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant. Progeny, property, and the, and, the, and the Lord's presence. The Lord's presence and his protection would go with him. And Isaac, at that point, if he was thinking well, he should have said, well, shoot, I can move forward in faith. If the Lord's presence goes with me, then anything that comes against me, I know the Lord will be with me through it. But the next thing we see him do is instead of moving out in faith, he moves out in fear. And he lies about his wife. And so, now listen, instead of living within the covenant and having, and moving out in covenant faith, he moves out in fear. He tells, he says in verse six, or in verse seven, she's my wife, she's my wife. He tells the king, she's my, I'm sorry, she's my sister. Why? The next line says, because he was fearful. He traded covenant faith for fear. He should have taken spiritual inventory. He should have taken spiritual inventory and said, the Lord's with me. And my identity's in him. I can move forward. I can move forward confidently. And whatever comes up against me, I know the Lord's going to be with me. He should have taken spiritual inventory. Do you take spiritual inventory? Do you ever have to say to yourself, Who, what do I really believe? I'm up against something that's fearful. I'm up against something that's intimidating. I'm up against something that I, I just don't like. Do you ever say to yourself, what do I really believe in that moment? Do I really believe that the Lord's presence is with me? Do I really believe the Holy Spirit dwells within me? Do I really believe that the Lord will give me the words I need at the exact moment so that I can represent him well? So you've got to take spiritual inventory sometimes and say, what do I really believe? Am, is my identity, do the, am I so impressed by these people that I'm willing to trade my identity in Christ for that? Or will my identity, I already, can I say to myself, 
I'm already beloved. By the, I've already been validated by the most important person in the universe. And therefore, I can move into any room and confidently represent Christ there. See, you've got to take spiritual inventory sometimes. And Isaac doesn't do it. He doesn't live in the covenant. He moves forward in fear. And let me say something here. Um, we got time. We live in a day and an age where many Christians are dominated by fear and anger. And if you let your fear and anger, if you let your fear and anger about the world and the craziness in it, and there's a lot of craziness in our world. I mean, we all know that. But if you let your fear and your anger about the world and its craziness dominate your thinking, you will not look for opportunities to be redemptive in the world. You won't. You'll walk into the you'll walk into the world with a posture of well, to hell with it. Rather than walking into the world saying, I'm here to be redemptive in it. You will not see if you let fear and anger about about the way the world is, if that dominates your thinking, you won't you'll miss ministry opportunities. You won't seek to be redemptive in it. You won't look for opportunities to be redemptive in it. You won't reach out in Christ's love, nor will you be able to enter into the brokenness of our world and offer hope and compassion, all because of fear. Fear and anger will drive you forward. Jot down, uh, jot down 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. 1 John 4, 18, it says, Perfect love casts out fear. Spiritual inventory. So fear is, fear is what drove Isaac to do this stupid thing. So how do we live in a world that's marked by trials? First, you expect challenges rather than be surprised by them. Challenges will come. No one's immune. Nobody gets through life unscathed. Second, you live out covenant faith rather than being driven by fear. Third, you get back up. You get up and you come to the Lord after you fail rather than laying there spiritually paralyzed. When you fail, just like Isaac, he fails here. We see that with Isaac, actually. He, the Lord comes to him, and he in turn builds an altar and worships the Lord. And living as a new, a new covenant Christian means accepting the Lord's forgiveness. Rather than staying spiritually paralyzed when you fail, and some people will do this. They'll say, well, I've sinned. I've sinned so much, I can't, the Lord can't forgive me. Hogwash. When he said on the cross, it is finished, what he meant is, it is finished. Every part of your sin has been paid for. So when you fail and fall short, and we all do, rather than lying there being being spiritually paralyzed, a new covenant Christian will accept the Lord's forgiveness, and you will press on after we blow it. Don't let your mistakes, your failures, your sin, keep you from repenting and worshiping the Lord. So you get up, and you come back to the Lord and worship rather than staying spiritually paralyzed. Here's the fourth thing. You rest in the new covenant realities of grace rather than trying to earn it. You rest. If, you're, if you want to live in, in, a, in a world that's marked by trials, you've got to rest in the new covenant realities. And just as Isaac inherited the covenant through one man's practical obedience, you too, if you're in Christ, you inherit the covenant of grace. Because of Christ's perfect obedience. And my friend, listen, you've got to let your full weight down on these realities. The complete 
forgiveness of God, the presence of God in your life. You've got to let yourself down on the new covenant realities because when you do, oh my, it'll change your life. It'll bring you complete forgiveness of your sins. Complete forgiveness of all of your sins that you've ever committed. Every thought, word, deed, gone. It'll bring you new covenant realities. It'll bring you complete forgiveness of sins. It'll give you peace in the midst of turmoil, knowing that you're not walking through the various trials alone because the Lord has told us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So no matter what you're going through, you're not going through it alone. Complete forgiveness of sins, it'll bring you peace. It'll give you purpose to live redemptively, to live redemptively through the various trials, through the various challenges, knowing that the Lord is shaping you and using your witness to reveal the Lord's faithfulness to a new group of people. So it'll give you purpose. Lastly, it'll bring you gratitude. Living in the new covenant realities, letting your full weight down on the new covenant realities, it'll bring you gratitude, knowing that your relationship with the Lord isn't based on your obedience. It's completely rooted in Christ's obedience. And that, that is wonderful. So Christian friend, let your full weight down on the new covenant realities given to you in Christ. Amen? Let me pray, and we'll sing. Father, we thank you for this passage. And Lord, we, those of us who are older, we know that life is marked by trials. And there's a new one every morning, Lord. And so would you help us, as your people, learn to navigate the trials that we experience redemptively, purposefully bringing into them hope, love, and compassion. Lord, we need this. We need to be people who in our day and age are not driven along by fear and anger, but are driven along by the gospel. The reality that soon and very soon all of the pain that we are experiencing will be reversed and we will experience full-orbed joy for all of eternity. Help us to live out of that reality, Lord. We trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.